you, Mariano, very much indeed. Well, do please keep your Bible open at that passage, Mark 11, 1 to 11, and uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us in his word. Heavenly Father, in these days of fear and confusion and illness and death, Lord, we pray that you would rend the heavens and come down and speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this passage is the traditional reading, of course, for Palm Sunday. And uh, it's recorded in all four Gospels, so it's instantly familiar to us, even if it seems rather unusual to be looking at it in December. But uh, the familiar passages are sometimes the more difficult ones, and uh, that may perhaps be the case here. And I say that because it is sometimes used, uh, this passage, as an opportunity for the children uh, to come into church on Palm Sunday and entertain us by recreating the scene, uh, waving their palm branches and encouraging us to be a little bit more enthusiastic in our worship, rather like the crowd. And uh, when the passage is preached from the pulpit... Um, a favourite approach has been to highlight the, the fickleness of the human heart uh, by suggesting that the people singing the praises of the Lord Jesus on Palm Sunday, just five days later, were calling for his death. Now, there may be something to be said for those ideas, but both of them, I think, miss the main point. And if we're going to understand that the real significance of this extraordinary event... Uh, we've got to suspend any preconceived ideas we might have about it and look carefully at what the text actually says. And uh, what a strange episode it is. Uh, I mean, imagine for a moment going into a bicycle shop uh, on the main road, taking a bike off the rack and walking out onto the street. And uh, as you walk out of the shop, the owner rushes after you and says, what on earth are you doing? And you say, well, the Lord needs it. Uh, How far do you think you would get if you said that? So what are we to make of this rather unusual event? It doesn't involve a bicycle, of course, but a donkey. And the donkey is being pressed into divine service. That's what they say here, isn't it? They say, God needs this donkey. That's why we're taking it. But what does it mean? Why has Mark included this in his book? Well, in order to answer that question, I want us to try and think our way through the passage by looking at it from three perspectives. First of all, the perspective of the actions of Jesus. That's the first thing to look at here. And then secondly, the reaction of the crowd. And then at the end, we'll reflect on the applications here for you and me this morning. So firstly then, the the action of Jesus. And I want you to notice three things in particular under that heading. Uh, First, the action of Jesus here is a deliberate action. Uh, The way that this cult is acquired does look, doesn't it, as if everything has been carefully planned in advance. It's not a spur-of-the-moment idea. 
So look, for example, at the way that Jesus identifies the location. Uh, his instructions to the two disciples are very specific. He says, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. And that is very specific. And some people say, well, it just illustrates the fact that uh, uh, Jesus is omniscient, that means he knows all things, and certainly that's true. But as you read this, it, it does seem, doesn't it, as if Jesus has made careful plans for this to happen. He specifies the location. It, it's just as you enter the village. And he also knows that the colt that they're going to find has never been ridden. Now that might seem like a small detail to us. Until we read our Bibles carefully, and we find in the Old Testament that when a donkey was pressed into the service of the king, they didn't go to a farmer and ask for just any old working animal. No, they went to look for an unbroken animal that had never been ridden. Uh, and if you're taking notes, you can find examples of that in Numbers 19, uh, Deuteronomy 21, and 1 Samuel 6. So the deliberate action of Jesus here is apparent from the location. It's apparent from the condition of the colt as an unridden animal. And I think it's also apparent from what we might call the password. Because several Bible experts say that the phrase, the Lord needs it, in verse 3, is actually where the inverted commas should end in our text. In other words, when the disciples are asked, why are you doing this? They are to say, the Lord needs it full stop, close inverted commas, and we will send it back shortly. That's not a massive point, and you can cross-reference this with the other Gospels for yourselves and decide whether you agree with this or not. But when you look at verse 5, the drama unfolds precisely as Jesus said it would. Uh, the people standing there ask, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. In other words, Jesus said to the disciples, when you're challenged, use the password. Password is, the Lord needs it. And the people will know that you've been sent by me, and they'll let you take the donkey. See, otherwise, it would actually be no different, this, would it, to walking out of the bike shop on Main Road with a brand new bike, and when you're challenged, saying to the owner, the Lord needs it, and you know perfectly well, in that particular example, that he would say, oh yes, sure he does. Put it back, it's not yours, and you'll leave the shop without the bike. So that's the first thing here. The action of Jesus is a deliberate action. Then the second thing to notice is that it's a dramatic action. There's drama in the arrival of Jesus at Jerusalem, and we'll see this again next week, of course, when we come to the clearing of the temple. But this is surprising, I think, because, of course, one of the hallmarks of Jesus' early ministry has been secrecy, hasn't it? You know, again and again, 
we've heard Jesus saying to people, keep quiet. Don't tell people what I've been doing. And of course it would have been perfectly possible, wouldn't it, for Jesus to slip into Jerusalem without anybody noticing. But it's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus chooses to arrive in Jerusalem in a way that is noticed. He's consciously decided to arrive at Jerusalem in that way, that he will enter Jerusalem in a way that identifies him as the Messiah. And the drama of that is apparent from the simple phrase at the end of verse 7, if you'd like to look at it. Verse 7 says, when they brought the cult to Jesus, he sat on it. Now why is that dramatic? Well, because nowhere else in the Gospel do we find that Jesus is riding on a donkey. Jesus walked everywhere. But here for the first time he's riding. Uh, And as we'll see in a moment, every Jew knew from his Old Testament that that was a highly symbolic thing for him to do. So not only is the action of Jesus deliberate, it's also dramatic. And thirdly, it's dangerous. What Jesus does here is dangerous. Why is that? Because by his action, he's declaring quite openly that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of David, therefore the king of the Jews. And the danger here was the danger of that signal being misunderstood. Uh, You see the crowd immediately latching on to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. Now that's obvious, isn't it, from what they shout in verses 9 and 10. But their understanding of what that meant was so very distorted that it was a danger to his mission. If you're tempted to doubt that, you'll have to face the fact that John tells us that at first, even his disciples didn't understand this. It was only much later that the disciples understood what was really happening here. So there we have then the action of Jesus. It is deliberate, it is dramatic, and it is dangerous. And in Mark's account, the action of Jesus here is set against the second perspective that we're looking at this morning, which is the reaction of the crowd. Now let me suggest that the reaction of the crowd is also defined by three things. First of all, it's defined by passion. I mean, it was one thing for the disciples to make a saddle for Jesus, and we're told that in verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. Uh, Obviously the unridden colt didn't come complete with livery and a saddle, so the disciples provided their cloaks instead. And it may be that the saddle was a necessity. We don't know, maybe it was. But whether it was or whether it wasn't, that stands in contrast to the unnecessary and extravagant response of the crowd in verse 8. Just look at verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while other people spread branches they'd cut in the fields. If you know your history, you'll know that uh, 
one of the famous explorers was a guy called Sir Walter Raleigh and uh, he's remembered for having removed his cloak and put it on the ground so that Queen Elizabeth I could uh, walk through a puddle without getting her feet wet. And here we have this same kind of extravagant gesture by members of the crowd for Jesus. Now again, that might seem like a fairly small thing to us, but it wouldn't have been small to them. And certainly not to the people who knew their Bibles. They would have remembered what happened when Jehu was anointed as king of Israel, and you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 9. Because when Jehu announces to his fellow officers that the Lord has anointed him as king over Israel, their immediate reaction is to remove their cloaks and spread them under Jehu on the steps. And then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So there is a definite precedent in the Old Testament to the action of the crowd here. And it was marked by passion. They were creating a kind of red, red carpet, I suppose, for the Messiah. But then secondly, the reaction of the crowd was also marked by expectation. When they saw Jesus approaching Jerusalem, riding on his donkey, they recognised that as a very clear assertion of his messiahship. Now you've got to remember here that Mark wrote his gospel first. And uh, he's left out some of the details that we find in the other three. So he doesn't say that this took place to fulfil what the prophet had said. He simply reports what happened. And he says in verse 9 that those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. And what did they shout? Well, they shouted the songs that pilgrims would use on their way up to one of the three annual festivals in Jerusalem. And specifically here, they're shouting Psalm 118. It also seems that they took their cue from Bartimaeus, who, as we saw last week, was the first person in Mark's Gospel to recognise Jesus as the son of David. And he went on shouting about it, didn't he, at the top of his voice, now the crowd seem to have tuned into that because here they're shouting Hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David And when we combine that with Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 we begin to realise what was going on in the minds of these individuals and by the way, just as an aside, this is why you need a whole Bible to become a whole Christian. This is why if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to read the whole Bible and not just a few favourite passages. Because the Bible, you see, is essentially a two-act drama. In Act 1, all of this is anticipated. And in Act 2... What is expected is actually fulfilled. And that's why when Jesus began his public ministry all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 15, 
He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Because in Act 1, in the Old Testament, there is the expectation of a new kingdom. And that's why, you see, Zechariah says in chapter 9 of his book, verse 9, listen to this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Listen carefully. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the great river to the ends of the earth. Now just imagine for a moment that uh, you are a parent. Some of you are, some of you aren't. But just imagine for a moment you are a parent and you're reading the Bible to your children before they go to bed. And you're reading Zechariah chapter 9. And you're reading it, I hope, as carefully as you possibly can. And they are listening attentively. And one of them says to you, well, who is Zachariah talking about? Who is this person? When is he coming? That actually would be a very fair question to ask, wouldn't it? And by the way, you as the parent probably ought to be asking that question yourself. Who is he? When's he coming? Because that question is there right from the very beginning of the Bible. Alice read it to us a little bit earlier. Um, and it may be that some of the people in the crowd that day were full of expectation because they were also thinking of the words in Genesis 49 that Alice read earlier. Uh, Genesis 49 verse 10. Jacob blessing his sons, talking about Judah. And he says the scepter, what is a scepter? Well, it's, it's a rod of authority. The rod of authority will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, until what? Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Now again, any careful, thoughtful reader of the Bible we'll look at Genesis 49 and say, well, who is this person? And when are they going to come? So can you see that we need to see the Bible as a two-act drama? It is one story. It is one plan. But it is in two acts. And it's really important to see this because, you know, if you go and see a play at the theatre and you leave after Act 1, well, you've got no idea how it ends. And equally, if you only pitch up for Act 2, 
Well, what happens is you start annoying everybody around you by nudging the person sitting next to you and saying, well, why did that happen? Why did she say this? And, of course, the proper answer to that question is, well, if you're turned up for act one, you'll know. And it's exactly the same with the Bible. We have to read the whole thing. So that when we come to passages like this in Mark chapter 11, with a quotation surrounded by inverted commas, we say, okay, let's look back to Act 1 and see what the prophet said and why he said it. And when we do that here in Mark chapter 11, what we find is that the passion of the crowd was motivated by their expectation. But then thirdly, the reaction of the crowd is marked not only by their expectation and by their passion, but also by confusion. You see, they knew that the prophet Isaiah had written, in that day, the day of the Lord, the deaf will hear, and out of the gloom and the darkness, the eyes of the blind will see, said Isaiah. Well, you don't have to be a genius to say, well, isn't that what just happened with Bartimaeus? Wasn't he blind? And uh, when blind Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, didn't Jesus open his eyes so that he could see? And didn't Zechariah tell us to expect our king coming, riding on a donkey? Well, here he is. It's all happening. So put these three things together and what we find here is that the passion of the crowd was fueled by their expectation but their expectation was spoiled by their confusion. And we're not here talking about the confusion Uh, that sometimes happens when this passage is taught, which goes along the lines of the crowd being fickle, just as I mentioned at the beginning. Because we are sometimes told that uh, that on Palm Sunday they're shouting Hosanna, and on Good Friday they're shouting Crucify. But I don't think that's right. Because I think there are two different groups. Uh, There is the group here that is going before and after Jesus, They are probably pilgrims from Galilee. Uh, They've been with Jesus on the road. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the sermons. And they're making their way to Jerusalem to one of the big annual feasts. And they're singing Psalm 118 as they go. But notice in the text, in our text, Jesus doesn't actually enter Jerusalem until verse 11. So although the heading in your Bible says the triumphal entry, that's actually not quite right, is it? It would be more accurate to call this the triumphal procession. And in that procession, all the chants are filled with passion and expectation and, as I'm going to show you a bit more in a minute, confusion. And it's only later when Jesus confronts the Jerusalem crowd 
we find that they're not shouting Hosanna, they're shouting crucify. And interestingly, when uh, Jesus does make his entry into Jerusalem in verse 11, do you notice this? There's no indication, is there, in verse 11, that the crowd is still with him. He's actually there on his own. Now, I know that it's hard for us as 21st century Gentiles to, to read this and to work out what might have been going on in the mind of a first century nationalistic Jew. But uh, when these things begin to come together in their minds and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us, they're not thinking personal salvation. No, they're thinking national liberation. They're thinking political revolution. They're actually thinking, this is marvellous. Now the Romans are going to be defeated. Now the temple is going to be restored at the very centre of our national life. And now we're going to get the earthly kingdom which we've all been hoping for. Now you see, if Jesus had linked his message to that particular dream, well, he'd have had far more followers. He'd never have been crucified because the Jews hated the Romans. They didn't want to live under Roman rule. They were looking for a political champion. And you see, if Jesus had said, yep, this is absolutely right, this is what I've come to do, then the support from the pilgrims travelling to Jerusalem combined with a positive response from the people inside Jerusalem would have given him a massive amount of support. But you see, they would have been hoping for something that Jesus never intended and never promised. We don't have time this morning to tease out all the details on this, but uh, I'm sure some of you will remember from your Bible reading that there was one occasion when the crowd came to try and make Jesus king by force. And John tells us in his Gospel that that was after the feeding of the 5,000. But John also tells us in that same account that Jesus, when he heard about this, slipped away into the mountains to be by himself because it was never his intention to be that kind of king. And while we think about confusion, perhaps most striking of all, after the resurrection, even the disciples of Jesus are still confused about this. So, uh, when we go to the book of Acts, and you can read about this later, go to the beginning of the book of Acts, we're told there that after his resurrection, uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, for a period of 40 days. And what was he doing in those 40 days? Well, we're told that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. You would think, wouldn't you, that after 40 days of the most brilliant teaching about the kingdom of God, that the disciples would have been crystal clear about it. You would think that, wouldn't you? But in Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples actually come to Jesus 
And they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were still confused. And that's why I say that the crowd's reaction was passionate, it was expectant, but it was confused. And the reason it was confused was because the way they were reading their Bibles was highly selective. Come back to that in a moment. Well, we've looked at the action of Jesus. We've thought about the reaction of the crowd. Let's go finally to a moment of personal reflection, personal application. These are just a few things that I noted for myself this week and I offer them to you to think about and see what they are saying for you. And the first thing that I take away from this passage is the need to be cautious about people who are passionate and quote the Bible. Now, you weren't expecting me to say that, were you? But you see, there are an awful lot of sincere, passionate, Bible-quoting people who are sincerely wrong. Because it's always possible to twist the Bible and make it say what you want it to say. So the real question you see is, when you lay the Bible out and you let it speak for itself, what does it actually say? And when you guys are listening to me on Sunday morning or whoever is in this pulpit, your first concern ought not to be, well, I wonder what Simon has to say about this. Your first concern ought to be, I wonder if the way that we've approached this passage this morning is helping us to understand what the Bible actually says. Can I say that Cape Town is full of people quoting the Bible to support their own passionate ideas? But that doesn't necessarily mean they're right. That's the first thing. Second, the reason that these sincere people were confused and wrong in Mark chapter 11 was because they didn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. In other words, they didn't actually understand the Gospel. You see, they were reading their Bibles selectively. And they didn't like the part where the Bible says the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of cruel men, and die. You see, there was absolutely no room in their thinking for a Messiah that dies. For a nationalistic Jew, the idea of a Messiah king that dies on the cross was frankly ridiculous. In fact, when they did see Jesus hanging on the cross, they weren't saying, oh yes, that must be the Messiah, They were saying, this can't possibly be the Messiah because their confusion was so great. Which is why misunderstanding the mission of the suffering servant and focusing instead on a triumphant political king, they got the gospel completely wrong. And that then led me to write another note for myself, which is that unless we keep the gospel at the very centre of our thinking, of our praying 
and of our living, well, we can too easily fall into the trap of passionate, expectant confusion. Because, you see, it is the Gospel which lies at the very heart of the entire Bible. Because I don't know whether you know this, but the story of the Bible is the story of man in rebellion and sin putting himself in the place that God deserves to be and of God coming into our world and placing himself where man deserves to be, in the place of punishment for our sin. So from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end, the focus is on the way that God will bring sinners, rebels, like me, like you, into the perfection of his heaven. How can he bring sinners into heaven? Answer, the Messiah dies in our place. But you see, the nationalistic Jew, hearing that, says, no! Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. To which the Bible replies, yes, that's absolutely right. Because on that tree, Jesus the Messiah bears the curse of God upon sin so that all who trust in him will be declared righteous and will be treated as perfectly righteous even though they don't deserve it. So friends, unless we keep the gospel at the centre of our thinking, of our learning and of our living, without realising it, will actually create a Jesus of our own imagination. A Jesus that will fill our own political, or dare I say it, commercial expectations. Now you know perfectly well it's happened here in South Africa in the past. What a dark time that was. But can I say that it is still happening in Christian circles in South Africa this morning. Because there are plenty of Christians who at least in their hearts, if not with their lips, are asking the question of Acts chapter 1 verse 6. But not about the nation of Israel. Instead, they're asking the question, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to South Africa? In other words, when they say that, what they're saying is, Lord... Are you finally going to make this country the place we want it to be? And you know that's right. And see, when Christians say that, or they think that, they're no different to the crowds in Mark chapter 11. And the only safe antidote to that confusion is a clear understanding of, living of, and preaching of the Gospel. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So let's pray and ask for God's help to do that.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the King you promised from the very beginning. We thank you that by his death on the cross, that he's done everything necessary to guarantee a place in your eternal kingdom for everyone who believes and trusts that Jesus has borne the punishment for their sin. Forgive us for the many times when we have been confused about his mission, for the times when we have wanted you to establish our kingdom for our convenience. And help us to keep the gospel of the Lord Jesus at the very centre of our thinking, our living, and our witness to the world. And we ask these things in his precious name.